Blog Talk Radio. Look at you. I'm so cute. I'm up for adoption. She is cute. And she is up for adoption via Cat's Cradle, RVA, uh, uh, yeah, of Richmond. Of Greater Richmond, yeah. So, if you are interested in little Miss Zoe here, who's Zoe? Nine, nine weeks. Huh? Nine weeks. Nine weeks now? Nine weeks. Nine weeks. She's a little one. Couldn't have been what, but uh, she probably isn't still any more than like two pounds. Yeah, she's an itty bitty one. But very happy to have her here for now. She's settling in quite nicely. But she does need her forever. Yes, she does. Because it's not going to be here. Um, She might be settling in nicely, but she's not exactly playing well with the boys. And the boys aren't playing well with her. So She gets along great with the girls. Yep. Then like the boys. Yeah. Uh, okay. That's what it is. <laughs> Alex, let's go have. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have to. Yeah. It's the theme for tonight. It's our Canadian team. Yeah, so uh, we actually, you know, why Canada? Why are we talking about Canada now? Hey, Canada just opened the border. Yep, so you can go back to Canada now. Yeah. After, what, last week, right? The 21st. No, not the 21st, no, the 12th, yeah. Yeah, we're not um, going to the 21st yet. Sorry. Okay. Mine's blown gone completely. Excuse me. Um, but it is a long way to the border because there's a lot of paperwork these days because of, you know, COVID. Um, but you can get in there. So, yay. <laughs> and, of course, Chris and I, uh, both of us grew up not far from the Canadian border. We both went to college within 10 miles of the Canadian border. We love Canada. So, the, we're going to haunt Canada. Yeah. A lot of the people that I met growing up from, let's say, downstate New York, you know, Albany, New York City, Long Island, places like that. When I meet them, they're like, oh, guess you're a New Yorker. You're basically Canadian. Yeah, it, no yeah, yeah, so. When we go up to the family cottage, you know, occasionally the phone pings off the Canadian car. We're like, no, we're not in Canada. Not yet. Well, it's right over there. Oh, Alex, happy birthday. Yay, birthday. Oh. Happy birthday to you. I won't take any more questions. <laughs> I'll save everybody that punishment. Yeah. And our other girls, uh, ow, ow, ow. Those would be kitten gloves as gravity takes over. Um, Lulu's on the bed in there. She's just chilling in her space. She's not exactly pleased that Zoe has taken over the office. She's kind of. Fascinated and disgusted by Zoe and Kearns. It's Lulu for you. Um, yes, we're talking about you. I'm going to be impaled a lot. Zoe needs your claws slipped. And, uh, yeah. oh, hello, Patrick. Hello, Gwen. Thank you again for watching. Glad you're here tonight. And, yeah, we got a lot of ground to cover. Yes, we uh, do. Because yeah, Canada's big. Canada's big. There's already a part two. This was a monster script. Managed to trim it down a little bit, but it's probably going to run a few minutes longer than our typical episode. And, yeah, as Beth said, already part two, which I'm sure that we'll manage to save for an appropriate occasion. Of course. Yep. Ow. So. Hi, Mom. (laughs) (laughs) And hello, Roberta. Glad you are all here tonight. So, all right. So, fantastic. You're going to go ahead and dive in? If my elbows survive. Do I get to dive in? Do. All right. So we'll get the fancy introduction for tonight. I mean, we already kind of go you know, Canada, neighbor to the north, 
refer, you know, multiple nicknames, most prominently the Great Blake's North, if you will, because, well, land of the hockey and the sushi, and, and snow <laughs> and ice and, yeah, well, our friends up to the north, they, uh, they, you know, they might be a little younger than us as far as countries go, at least, you know, having independent countries. Yes. That's a whole, yeah, we will, we'll leave that for another day. Yeah, but, um, oh, and Alex Scott has some friends joining us tonight as well. Fantastic. Wonderful. Yeah, but, um, yeah, it's a you know, beautiful country up there. Um, we love to visit. Uh, second largest country in the world by land mass, only yeah. after Russia. Um, and it uh, only has a fraction of the population in the United States, though. So. It's cold. Yeah, just about everybody up there, most of the population lives within 100 miles of the, the uh, U.S. border. Yeah. Because you start getting much further north than that, and, well, it's cold. It's cold. <laughs> <laughs> it's just these train. It's cold. <laughs> so starting off with the first of our chilly but beautiful locations. Place I want to go. It's on my bucket list. Yeah. <laughs> I was so ready for Fast to finish the birthday song. You started it. Nope, not finishing it. Maybe, maybe a little bit. Beth needs to drink a little more. <laughs> so we're going to start at Banff Springs Hotel. Now, this is an iconic hotel. I'm sure that you've seen pictures of it. Beautiful, uh, almost like a chateau-like building, massive building that's out in the Canadian Rockies. And it was originally built by the Canadian Pacific Railway back in 1888. And uh, the Banff Springs Hotel was intended to be a, a haven of peace in the midst of the wilderness. And while the original wooden structure did burn back in 1926, it was promptly rebuilt into the remarkably beautiful structure that is today known to most of the staff simply as the Springs. Since its inception, it has played host to everyone, including movie stars, musicians, politicians, and even royalty. The Springs is a luxurious place with sweeping views of the Bow Valley and a relaxing spa, so it's no wonder a few of the souls who have passed through its halls have decided to stay for a, quite a while well after their mortal bodies have since checked out. The Springs is rich with ghostly tales, the first of which revolves around the hotel's most loyal and one of the most, hotel's most loyal employees. Sam the Bellman, a longtime employee at the Springs, passed away in 1975, but he was far from putting in his last shift. Sam had always threatened to come back to haunt the place, and it seems that he has succeeded in doing just that. For years, guests have reported being assisted by an elderly bellman with a Scottish accent in decades-old period garb. Of course, no such living employee at the Springs will be seen in dated clothing, and those same employees will also not disappear on you without a trace. One of Sam's favorite places to linger is at the elevators, which will sometimes open and close on their own at random times. People like to say that when the elevators seem to have a mind of their own, that it's actually just Sam trying to say hello. A second spirit at the Springs has a much less happy origin. She's ominously referred to as the doomed bride. While she is not a harmful spirit, guests have reported seeing this ghostly figure dancing in the Cascade Ballroom. It said that she fell down a curving stone staircase to her death before the beginning of her wedding reception many years ago. Legend has it that she had tragically even caught fire on one of the open torches at that time that they burned along the, uh, burned along the side of the staircase. She still said to be wandering through the halls in her wedding dress. And while her tale is remarkably tragic, there are worse places than eternity than the spring. 
The hotel is rife with other chilling and tantalizing tales of the paranormal. A luxurious hotel like the Springs, by its very nature, is a 24-7 operation. While guests rest up in preparation of the following day's adventures, whether it be hiking in the surrounding pristine national park, taking a round of golf at one of the hotel's award-winning courses, or simply enjoying the luxurious spa, or any number of the resort, uh, enjoying any number of the resort's other amazing amenities, there is always staff on hand to keep an eye on things and tend to the guest's needs. It probably comes as no surprise that many of the numerous paranormal encounters at the hotel happen in the wee hours of the morning when the hotel is at its quietest and the staff members are patrolling the hallways. One night guardsman was patrolling in one of the many uh, meeting and reception areas of the hotel when he realized that he was no longer quite alone. While the halls uh, were otherwise empty, the reflections were not all the guardsman's own. In one of the windows that would overlook the beautiful wilderness in the daylit hours, it only reflected the interior of the hotel in the darkness of the night. In one of those windows stood an individual of short stature, the figure of a ghostly child. The chill that ran down the guard's spine was enough to get the adrenaline flowing, enough for the man to be sure that it wasn't just some sleep-deprived hallucination. He somehow had the presence of mind to get a snapshot of the ghostly figure on his cell phone, an image that he would share with his fellow guards as a warning to them, and also to let them know that his tale did not make him crazy. In a separate incident around 3 a.m., another guard was patrolling the Wald House uh, yeah, restaurant when he witnessed one of the bar stools spinning about all on its own. No word on if anyone poured out a drink for the spirited bar guest that night. Which is suggested by the way. Yes. You see bar stools start spinning. We'll pull out and sit down. Yes. Or to shot of it. Yeah. Jameson. Or, well, I suppose you're up in Canada. Crown Royal. Yes. Crown Royal. That's what they do north of the border. Amongst their other amazing beverages. Yes. Uh, they do their drinks well. But, yes, the uh, stay at uh, Bath Springs is definitely on the short list for us. Oh, yeah. Hopefully I can get through this without somebody attacking me. Again, <laughs> sorry for my funny faces. All right, so we're going to pop over to Toronto, to Queen's Park. Uh, this is from the wilderness of the uh, Rocky Canadian Rocky Mountains. Uh, we go east to the most populous city, sitting on the northwest shore of Lake Ontario. The sprawling metropolis is that of the Greater Toronto Metro Area. It's home to about one sixth of Canada's population. As a major center of business and culture, Toronto is as beautiful as it is vast. Modern skyscrapers contrast with the architectural landmarks with a lot of green space woven into the cityscape. One of the most prominent public spaces is Queen's Park. It's situated amidst the University of Toronto and the Legislative Assembly of Ontario. This park is that of a whole beautiful state statuary has been a fixture for more than 60 years. The legislature building alone along the south side of the park is not the first building to stand on that site. Before the legislature building opened in 1893, the site was the home to the Auxiliary Female Asylum that operated on the site from 1849 to 1886. It was relocated to Queen Street West about four kilometers to the southwest. The legislature building is a beautiful, imposing structure that has earned itself the nickname the Pink due to the pinkish hue of Ontario's sandstone that was utilized for much of the structure. 
Honestly, for all the amazing detail and stunning architectural details that make up the building, they might as well have a giant banner on the outside that says, this building is very haunted. It just has that vibe that leaves you wondering what wanders in its halls aside from the modern-day politicians. One would not be blamed for thinking that the paranormal activity that does, in fact, take place here could be attributed to the fact that the current building stands on the foundation, the limestone uh, from the asylum that came before. The people that would, uh, of course, at least partially be correct if they were to think this. Three distinct apparitions roam the halls of the legislature that have been tied back to the asylum that came before. According to Dan Bogart, the communications officer with the Legislative Assembly's Parliamentary, Parliamentary Protocol Office. Say that three times. That's a mouthful. Da, 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 da. Parliamentary Protocol. <laughs> Can we just say Parley Pro? <laughs> Here's one reason. It's so easy. <laughs> now, these unfortunate women make for some of the most unsettling hauntings that occur within the building today. A woman in white has been seen on the third floor of the building wailing and moaning through the halls with a malevolent female spirit said to be on the fourth floor attic. Her presence is said to be strong, vengeful, and ever-present. These women are not the only ones to wander the beautiful marble hallways of the legislature, though. As a matter of fact, there were enough spirits for Bogart to lead a haunted history tour through the structure at Halloween time. The tour would wander through the various wings of the structure and highlighting the spots where the spirits are said to linger the most. About 10 years ago, Bogart conducted an interview with Toronto Star newspaper to talk about the ghost tours. But he did so with some hesitancy. Bogart does not wish for the structure to become known as a haunted house of sorts, but he recognizes that ghostly tales offer a unique way to share the history of the stately building. He says, this building represents our past and our future. It's an important bridge. Unsurprisingly, the tours have drawn out many individuals with an interest in the paranormal, including a few psychic mediums. One of the mediums mentioned that he saw a spirit in the house chamber sitting in the chair of the sergeant-at-arms. He sensed that the spirit's name was Charles. Barbara's curiosity was piqued, and by the application, uh, by the assertion, excuse me, and he decided to do a little digging. He was quite surprised by what he found. Captain Charles Rutherford served as the sergeant-at-arms from 1934 to 1940. He was also one of Canada's most distinguished veterans from World War I. When the war started, Rutherford joined the 5th Canadian Mounted Rifles and was immediately dispatched to Belgium. Soon afterward, Rutherford was marched into the Somme, a horrific thing for Canadian soldiers. Rutherford was wounded at the Regina Trench, one of Canada's 24,029 casualties in the Battle of the Somme. Rutherford recovered from his wounds and returned to France to continue his part in the war. While on patrol in northern France on August 26, 1918, Lieutenant Rutherford found himself alone, separated from his command, when he wandered into the battalion of 45 Germans. Bluffing to save his life, he boldly told them that they were his prisoners and that they were surrounded by Canadian soldiers. The Germans surrendered, and Rutherford was awarded the Victoria Cross for bravery. That man's got to be good at cards. <laughs> Just say, when you pull up a bluff like that. Awarded for his bravery and bluff. <laughs> that, that, that's Cheers to you, sir. <laughs> 
Having survived the war, Rutherford went on to serve his country in other ways, including his time in the Ontario legislature's sergeant-at-arms. He lived a long, full life before passing away on June 11, 1989. He was the last surviving Canadian soldier to receive the Medal of Valor for the Great War. While there's no definitive proof that it is, in fact, Charles Rutherford that haunts the House of Chambers, Barbara is inclined to believe that if there is any one individual who would linger on in the chamber after life, it'd be Charles, a man who was the epitome of Canadian bravery, loyalty, and ingenuity. Amongst other spirits who are thought to roam the building, there is the spirit of Richard Scott. Scott was an ambitious man who served in the Legislative Assembly of Ontario in the 1860s and 70s before moving up into national politics. Now, just a second, wasn't the legislative building at Queen's Park open in 1893? Well, yes, it was. But some of the furniture and decor throughout the building was relocated from the old Parliament building on Front Street, and so it's quite possible that Cyril Scott moved with it. Regardless of how he got there, the spirits of the Pink Palace at Queen's Park makes the building one of the most intriguing and historic haunting locations anywhere. Excuse me, well, Zoe got my throat. (laughs) She would never. (laughs) She's spicy tonight. Thank you, Tiger. She's spicy with you, Tiger. So with that, we are going to go ahead. We're going to fly across quite a few time zones. We are going to uh, head to the West Coast to a city where civilization and nature collide and blend with stunning results. Vancouver, British Columbia is a relatively young city, having only been incorporated in 1886. European settlers had not come to the area in any notable numbers until the gold rush of the late 1850s. Before that, people of the First Nations were thought to inhabit the area for at least eight to 10,000 years. Since its incorporation, Vancouver has seen remarkable growth. At first, due to the area's natural harbor, natural resources, and the arrival of the Transcontinental Railroad. Those key factors are still important to the city's economy today, but it has evolved to include technology, entertainment, and tourism amongst its major economic drivers. Today, Vancouver is considered one of the most livable cities anywhere, while also being the most densely populated city in all of Canada. With all of Vancouver's modernness, there is still plenty of history and turn-of-the-century luxury throughout the city, including the Hotel Vancouver. Completed by Canadian Pacific Hotels in 1939, this is the third hotel to carry the Hotel Vancouver name, but certainly the most enduring. Built in the French Chateau style that was well-known amongst the many other legendary hotels of the era, this formidable structure was the tallest building in Vancouver for over three decades and still endures as a bastion of elegance and luxury today. Perhaps it is this luxury and the happiness that it can inspire that draws spirits back, including the lady in red. Jenny Pearl Cox who is known as simply Pearl amongst her friends and family, uh, alongside her husband, Harold, and their six-year-old daughter, came to visit the Hotel Vancouver over the Christmas holiday in 1939. The hotel had just opened in May of that year for the visit of King George V and Queen Elizabeth I, and it immediately became the place where all of Vancouver gathered for its important business and social events. Pearl and her family were at the hotel for just such an event as a grand Christmas ball was to be held at the hotel. Excuse me. Pearl had a beautiful red gown made for the occasion and a splendid white stole to match. 
They enjoyed a wonderful evening swirling around the dance floor in the Pacific Ballroom, taking in the sights of the beautiful hotel decorations, and enjoying the delectable food from the heavily laden book, uh, banquet tables. They enjoyed themselves so much, in fact, that it became an annual event for the family. For five years, they returned to the Grand, Christ- Grand Christmas Ball at Hotel Vancouver. Then, in the summer of 1944, the family was returning from a picnic in the countryside. They didn't see the truck coming around the corner until it was too late. The entire family perished in the tragic accident, but they were not to be separated in the afterlife. It is said that Pearl, Harold, and their daughter are at the Hotel Vancouver today, the place where they year after year experience the most joy together. Pearl, still donning her beloved red gown, has inadvertently frightened many guests over the years. While it might not be her intention, she just loves to be where there's so much going on. Apparently, a cameraman for the television show The X-Files had an up-close and personal experience with Pearl. She hovered outside of the window where he was working to see what he was doing. This was not surprising, considering Pearl had been an amateur stage actor in her day. She simply wanted to check out the entertainment that the modern world had to offer. When the cameraman spotted her in the window, however, he left most of his equipment and refused to return to work. In another encounter, a young Japanese couple met Pearl upon checking into their room. Pearl was so clearly visible when they entered the room that they politely apologized, thinking that there had been some sort of mix-up. Pearl, apparently fascinated by the young woman's long, straight, black hair, approached her, reached out to touch her before vanishing before the couple's eyes. It's not only guests that have had encounters with Pearl, or the rest of her family for that matter. One evening, a houseman was passing by Elevator 8 on the 14th floor. This elevator generally isn't used as often as the others, but at this particular moment, Dorman noticed that the doors were open and there was a family of three standing inside. While seeing people in an elevator isn't unusual by any measure, it was the woman's dress that caught his eye. The doorman quickly recognized the beautiful red gown and, in turn, the woman that it was attached to. Together with her husband and daughter, the lady in red was unmistakable. As the elevator doors closed, the doorman remembered to breathe so that one of his colleagues or a guest didn't find him passed out with fright in the middle of the hallway. Despite the scares that she inspires, Pearl is by no means a malevolent spirit. She just seems to want to spend her years in the afterlife with her husband and daughter in the place that gave them the most pleasure during their mortal lives. Maybe a trip to the Hotel Vancouver might inspire your spirit in the same way should you decide to visit. Now, Patrick did mention about not hearing about a lady in red. We actually have one here in Richmond at the Hotel Jefferson. Um, We're not exactly sure who she is, but there's an idea that she might be a former first lady who died in the Richmond Theater Fire. I'm not theater fire. I'm sorry, Richmond uh, in the Jefferson fire in 1944. Yep, I think it was 1944, which was the same year that Pearl and her family passed away in the car crash on Vancouver. Maybe that was the year from the ladies in red. Maybe. Also, Virginia's capital here has its own politicians that are ghosts. Uh, We do have a former
so. All right, so let's jump over to Kingston, Ontario, a place Chris and I love to go um, to visit uh, when we're up at the island because it's uh, not far of a train trip away to do a little day trip. Yeah, so it's coming all the way back across. It's only uh, it's only about a three-hour ride from Toronto to Kingston. Yeah, so not too far. Great train ride, though. Uh, and here there is the Kingston Penitentiary. Uh, now, of course, after a lovely heartwarming tale, we're going to go to something that's not so nice. Because that's just what we do. Uh, now, in Kingston, of course, it is a very haunted location as well. Uh, and the penitentiary is probably high on the list of places to go if you want to be a haunted uh, location and historic location. Uh, the building has a grim history dating back almost two centuries. The prison entered service in 1835 as the provincial penitentiary of the province of Upper Canada. And it's alliteration. I give you all tongue twisters. <laughs> Didn't tell me to warm up either. And it would be the first of many penitentiaries in the Kingston area. As many as 10 penitentiaries opened up in the greater Kingston area over the years. You could have chance to warm up. You could have been happy birthday. <laughs> now, why were there so many? Uh, it's probably because Ontario has always been the most densely populated of all of Canada's provinces, leading to, of course, higher crime rates and more criminals. Kingston is also fairly central in its location to the relationships of, uh, of course, Toronto, Ottawa, and Montreal. It makes it a convenient location to house prisoners for all those major cities, and it was also a matter of practicality, as the first penitentiary was built, much of the expertise for building and operating penitentiaries was already centralized in the Kingston area. Thanks, Pat. Operations continued at the penitentiary until 2013, so it just recently closed. Recently. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's when it was finally shuttered. At the time, it was one of the oldest operating prisons anywhere in the world. Today, the building is a historic tourist attraction with guided tours that are generally focused on the significant events in the building's history. The architecture and even films that have used the facility as a backdrop in recent years. One thing that is generally glossed over, however, are the spirits that still reside in the institution, even though it has been retired from active service. One of the more notorious spirits that reside at the penitentiary is that of George Hewell. Simply put, fuel was a piece of work. <laughs> a violent lifestyle landed him in this maximum security facility, and rehabilitation wasn't really in his nature. Fuel earned himself a reputation for attacking the guards and other inmates, and eventually this caught up with him. In 1897, one of the guards that Fuel attacked struck back in self-defense and mortally wounded Fuel. As Fuel lay dying, he swore he'd have his revenge. Since then, Fuel has been seen many times. A lot of debate could be had about whether the deceased student is more or less intimidating as a spirit versus his previous corporal form. It's not just the ghosts of the deceased prisoners that still reside at the penitentiary. Not every staff member that has worked at the facility has come away alive. Excuse me. She's attacking Chris now. Yep, my foot. <laughs> She's a bit spicy tonight. Uh, the last staff member to die here was a guard named William Wentworth. William was working the midnight shift in November of 1961 when he was found stabbed to death on the third floor. Despite all the security at the penitentiary had to offer, his murder is a mystery to this day. While theories about uh, regarding his 
demise, one of the things that a few people argue about is that he haunts the place where he met a premature death. During a guided tour of the penitentiary, uh, after its closure, a rookie guide was listening to one of the facility's former employees talk about her experiences working in the historic building. The guide was in the back of the room, leaving against the door to one of the empty, locked cell blocks, when she heard something very peculiar from the other side of the door. It sounded like a dangling of old, heavy key ring set, and it was drawing closer and closer to the door. At first, the guide was uh, suspected, of course, a veteran guy trying to play prank on the newbie. Well, the noise drew closer, and it went from annoying to unsettling. The guy spun around to confront whoever was there, but she only saw the shadow of a man on the other side of the locked door. He was walking close to her before he paused, locked one of the cells, resulting in an unsettling jingle once again. He did this again and again, pausing at each cell to lock it as the guy stood in shock. Eventually, the shadow man walked back up the block away from the guy, his task apparently complete. The guy finally uh, found the will to move and decided to wait outside for the tour to end. When she told the veteran guide of her experience that evening, he just laughed and said, oh, that's wet work.
<clears throat> when the building entered service in 1862, it was known as the Carleton County Jail. And, um, and in contrast to the hostel that operates there today, amenities were scarce. Windows were open to the elements, subjecting prisoners to the brutally cold out of the winters. Rooms were crowded, including the solitary confinement cell. How can solitary confinement be crowded? Well, these cells were only about three foot wide by nine foot deep, and yes, you can stay in one of them. Today, it is marketed as an authentic jail cell and a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Also note, it does come with free Wi-Fi. And claustrophobic. <laughs> if the conditions of the cells weren't foreboding enough, in the basement you will still find the cells where ill-behaved prisoners would be shackled to the floor face down, complete with the iron rings. The original gallows remains as well, complete with a replica noose. It's hard to say how many prisoners were executed at the jail, but more certainly perished uh, but more certainly perished as a result of the harsh conditions. The CYHA deliberately left these and other features intact, partly to create a cool place to stay, but also to honor the history of the building. Perhaps less deliberate was leaving the place feeling just like home to all the ghosts lingering around inside. It's more than just the prisoner spirit on the place, though. When what is now the hostel's parking lot was partially dug up to build the Mackenzie King Bridge, the remains of 140 bodies were found buried there, and they only dug up a corner of the lot. No one knows how many other bodies are still hanging out in the grounds around the hostel. Amongst those buried there is the most notorious inmate in the jail's history, Patrick J. Wellen who was imprisoned and hanged before a crowd of 5,000 onlookers for the murder of politician Darcy McGee in 1869. His body was supposed to be sent to Montreal, but was instead buried on the jail property. If dishonoring the burial wishes of someone sounds like a haunting fuel, you would be right. Patrick is the hostel's most cited ghostly guest. He's often seen at the foot of a guest's bed clutching a Bible. Aside from Mr. Wellen, other, uh, other spirits are thought to linger about as well, particularly those of the many women and children that once shared in the jail's abysmal conditions. Most of those one-time prisoners were kept in the part of the building now known, uh, now, uh, excuse me, part of the building that now ironically serves as the hostel's lounge area. Many claim to hear the echoes of long-lost screams in the space, making it the perfect contradiction of restfulness and lingering torment. Even for the many guests who don't get the full ghostly visitor treatment, most report a generally creepy feeling overnight. But that might just be rampant imagination, particularly if they took the, the hostel's complimentary jail tour earlier in the day. That said, many guests leave with the feeling of having had a uniquely creepy experience. Here are just a few of the reviews the hostel has received over the years. Great hostel, but the ghosts kept messing with the entrance door. Spooky AF. Beautiful place. Ghosts won't leave me alone. Loved humming to me. Such an amazing experience. We'll definitely come back. Thank you. I like this one. I do not believe in ghosts, nor does the friend I was traveling with. However, at 1 a.m., my friend woke up screaming, let me go. And she said she felt like someone was holding her arm. 
and I wasn't anywhere near her, and there was no one else in the room. Let me tell you, you can't fake that kind of reaction. Highly recommend. <laughs> this sounds like my person. <laughs> sounds like this place draws a unique clientele. Yes. Like us. Um, 
to truly have, or it's different enough to have like a truly unique experience there. But it also has enough in common with us here and in the U.S. Like. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, you know, the the only times you might feel a little funny are when you're uh, trying to handle the money stuff and stuff yeah. like that. <laughs> <laughs> Have a good credit card that handles the conversion for you. That's, yeah. that's the best way to go. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I don't want to say it's not use caution because it's not dangerous. No. But take it with take that with a grain of salt when it comes to going to Quebec because most of them their their primary language is French Canadian. So if you're not up to snuff on your French then that might be a little bit of a jarring experience for you. Yeah. But still, beautiful, yeah. friendly people. And most of the time we've gone over, both of us are, are speak some limited French. I'm very rusty. <laughs> and you're relearning. I need to relearn again. Um, if you try. Table for two. Table for two, people say. Table for two. But, uh, you know, they would, they'll basically say it's okay to speak English. Yeah. But they appreciate your trying. And, it, and if you at least learn from the basics, like, uh, salut, bonjour, merci beaucoup, merci beaucoup. The basics. Yeah. They'll appreciate it. Talk to the cemetery. Ah, yes. So we are going to continue going east. Now, here's the thing about Canada also. You know, for you envision, envision the United States and east to west, uh, or west to east, if you will, whatever. Um, and you go east, and you come across the eastern seaboard, and you got, you know, Maine sticking out up there. But you really kind of think of that as like, wow, that's like the far eastern reaches, reaches of the continent, and you're not even close. No. So you go up to Canada, and you go up to Canada, you go up, you know, Ottawa, Quebec, and then you keep going east. And there's some the island, and you keep going. Yeah. So this next stop might be a little tricky if you're rusty on your Canadian provinces. Now, this is immediately to the east of the state of Maine, and you'll find the province of New Brunswick. This is one that, well, if, again, if you're not up to snuff, you might forget about this one because amongst all the Canadian provinces, this one only makes up about 1% of Canada's total land mass. It's a pretty small province as far as Canada goes. Uh, and... Uh, now, yeah, as you, as you cross into New Brunswick and you're heading east, you'll find yourself approaching Nova Scotia, which is a province even smaller than New Brunswick. But anyway, before you reach Nova Scotia, it's here shortly before crossing the provincial border that you'll find the small town of Hillsborough. Now, Hillsborough is a town of only about like 1,200 people, really kind of a small postage stamp, which is kind of common for that part of Canada. It's not one of the more inhabited parts of uh, of Canada there, but it's a you know cute little town that they got up there. And if you're looking for things to do, uh, you would likely find references to its railroad museum. Uh, there's a historic home there for uh, one of their uh, you know kind of a legendary member of their judiciary, similar I guess you could say in nature to uh, Richmond's John Marshall. Um, and uh, you would also find reference to Gray's Island Cemetery. The cemetery, this cemetery dates back to 1825 and could be found down a lonely dirt road on the north side of town, and it's home to a statue called the White Lady of Grave Island Cemetery. At first glance, you might mistake her for a traditional Catholic grave marker as she resembles the Virgin Mary, but this is not the case. This statue was carved to match the lady buried beneath her. Her distraught husband had made... Um, <clears throat> had made the statue to keep his wife's memory alive, uh, if only for himself. 
The statue was initially placed in the man's backyard, and the grief-struck uh, grief widower could be seen with the statue conversing with it by passers-by every day until he himself was found deceased at its base one day. The statue was then moved to the cemetery to rest upon the woman's grave. Mm, excuse me. Tacos are cheesy. Sorry. Are you talking about the scones? Mm. Uh, the scones and beer. Mm. <laughs> anyway. In the years since, legends have sprung up about the statue, and she has no shortage of visitors, though many of those visitors have had some ghoulish intentions in mind. There are two stories about the statue that may help explain its current condition, which we'll get to in just a second. The first tale is that if you were to close your eyes and circle the statue three times, that when you stop at the statue's base with your back to the white lady, you will be touched on the shoulder by the statue's outreached hand. Unfortunately for the statue, its hand has since been removed, but it's up for debate whether this was done by someone looking for a ghoulish souvenir or if it was done by cemetery groundskeepers to try and reduce mischief in the cemetery at night. As unpleasant as that may seem, it pales in comparison to this other legend about the statue. As beautiful as the statue was, its eyes were unsettling. Deep, hollow sockets, which some believe once housed gems that had long since been removed. This legend starts the same way, with closed eyes and three circles about the statue. But this time, instead of awaiting a touch on the shoulder, you stop and look into the statue's eyes. Instead of dead, empty sockets, you would find a very human and living pair of eyes staring back at you, or you might find the sockets flowing with tears of blood. Unfortunately for the statue, her head has also been removed. This almost certainly was taken as a grotesque souvenir. For those with a more daring and spiritually sensitive nature, you can visit what remains of the statue today and rest your ear on the cool stone. The results can be both frightful and fascinating in turn. You might hear one of two sounds, a woman screaming with loss and despair, or the laughter of a child running about on a beautiful summer day. While a little off the beaten path, a visit to Gray's Island Cemetery should be on the list for any cemetery affectionado. I'll just roll on to the next one. Thank you. <laughs> that was sharp. <clears throat> okay. So with that, we're going to go to an area that a lot of people are much more familiar with, uh, and it's uh, going to be another cemetery. This one, however, this cemetery is down to Niagara Falls, and this is Drummond Hill Cemetery. Now, well, best known for the falls which, uh, after which the city is named, Niagara Falls was also the site of one of the bloodiest battles of the War of 1812. On July 25, 1814, the Battle of Lundy's Lane was fought on a patch of farmland, resulting in an immense number of casualties for the attacking American forces and the defending British regulars and Canadian militia. Much of the clash took place on the land that now comprises and surrounds Drummond Hill Cemetery. The battle ended in a stalemate, but a tactical victory for the British as the American forces withdrew and effectively ended their invasion of Upper Canada. Uh, though the war dragged on for another seven months, there would not be another significant threat to Canada by the Americans again. 
To this day, the spirits of long-dead soldiers are still seen traversing the open fields of the cemetery and adjacent area. The most commonly seen spirits are dressed in the distinct uniform of the Royal Scots, though British redcoats have been seen as well. Now, all of these spirits are fearlessly rushing into battle, so rather, some of them have clearly already seen action as they limp towards the old Lundy House, which is believed to have been used as a hospital during the war. Some have also claimed to hear boots stomping across the field and the shouts of men in battle, but these claims are questioned by many in the paranormal investigation community. The unfortunate truth is that the one-time battlefield has largely been lost to residential and commercial development, and many attribute that the sounds that are heard uh, to the now encroaching modern community. If you decide to go have a wander about Drummond Hill Cemetery for yourself, keep an open mind and a healthy dose of skepticism close at hand. No matter the paranormal evidence you may or may not gather, you will at least get a taste of Canada's significant wartime history. She's not pleased that I'm with my Oh, dear. Next. Road trip again. <laughs> All right, we're heading back over to Victoria, British Columbia. Uh, this is, of course, uh, flying west. And uh, instead of Vancouver, we land south of the city of Victoria. Victoria is the capital of the city of British, excuse me, the capital city of British Columbia. Let me get my prepositions in the right place. And it uh, claims to be abundant with beautiful architecture, outdoor activities, and one piece of architecture that rises above the rest is Cataract Castle. Cataract was built in 1887 and 1890 by Robert Dunsmuir, but he died before construction could be completed. Dunsmuir was a Scottish immigrant who made his fortune in Vancouver Island coal. He had a sizable family with his wife, Joan, raising two sons and eight daughters. God bless that woman. And alongside with one child that was sadly lost in infancy. Now, despite Robert's passing, the estate was finished by two of his sons so that Joan would have a place to live. Joan took up residence in Cataract in 1890 with her three unmarried daughters and two orphaned grandchildren. Not all was well with the family, though. Robert's death and broken promises that unfolded as a result caused considerable strife between the remaining family members. Robert had verbally promised his sons, James and Alex, that they would inherit at least some of Robert's vast wealth. Most notably, the family business that the two young men had worked in for their entire lives. Instead, Robert's will stated that everything went to Joan. In the case of money being thicker than blood, the sons were forced to negotiate with their mother for seven years to get title to the company that they had effectively operated after their father had entered politics. It took another three years for them to negotiate the purchase of the Wellington Colliery from their mother. These businesses still only represented a portion of the empire that Robert Dunsmuir had built. With this bit of financial security, Alex felt that he was finally able uh, to be in a stable enough position to officially get married to the woman who he had been living with for 20 years. Unfortunately, Alex died only six weeks after the marriage while honeymoon. Alex's death launched. Ma'am. <laughs> an ugly uh, quarrel about the contents of his will with James being sued by his mother with support of the, her daughters. 
By all accounts, it seems that James and Joan rarely spoke, if at all, for the remainder of Joan's life. She died at Condorac Castle after living there for 18 years. Despite the animosity, James attended his mother's funeral and openly wept. Joan's daughters sold Condorac Castle after her death, and in the years that followed, it served as a private home, a military hospital, home of Victoria University, and home of the Victoria Conservatory of Music. Conservatory. Conservatory, that's not what you wrote. It's autocorrect bailman. <laughs> Today it's maintained as a historic landmark and is open to the public for tours. The Historic Preservation Society supports Cotter Castle and is tight lit as any paranormal activity that happens on the castle grounds, but some spooky tales have emerged from the site all the same. Visitors have reported seeing various apparitions around the building as well as inexplicable music echoing from the vast chambers. During one family's visit, they had a bizarre experience in a room known as Jesse's Room. A woman entered Jessie's room with her son-in-law to find her husband already in the room, looking rather shaken. He, his back was to a partial wall with a set of stairs on the other side. The woman and her son-in-law saw what they would, could only describe as a pair of black dressed pants ascending the stairs from only the knees down. The woman, startled by what she had witnessed, asked, who was that? But her husband insisted that he had been alone in the room so he did admit seeing shadows moving on the wall. The son-in-law was dumbfounded as he had seen the black pants going upstairs as well. Together, the three family members decided to investigate for themselves and went up to the third floor another way. The stairs in Jesse's rooms are closed to the public. Upon finding the door at the top of the stairs on the third floor, they found it to be bolted shut, without even a doorknob to turn it and open it. Whatever was on those stairs had vanished. They could only describe their encounter as having seen one of Cardrick's resident ghosts. Other visitors to the castle have been said to encounter Joan herself descending the main staircase. She's decked out in one of her finest white ball gowns, leaving a lingering impression on anyone who sees her before she vanishes. More daring visitors who visit the basement say they encounter a creepy childlike specter with downcast eyes will also vanish as you approach. Objects through the castle seem to be able to move on their own volition. Piano music can be heard, and despite the fact that there has actually been no piano in the castle for many years. While it might not be openly discussed today, paranormal activity seems to inspire some filmmakers in recent years. In 2013, a supernatural show called Spooksville filmed an episode at the castle, and in 2016, the castle was used to film a horror movie called The Boy. Whether it's a commensalist relationship of the Dunsmere family members or the many various uses that came afterward, Cotterack Castle seems to have collected plenty of energy to fuel some paranormal activity. Now, that was a fun place to visit. So, the pictures I looked at were gorgeous. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Victoria yeah. is definitely bumped up on my list of places to visit in Canada. Yeah. Um, I found a haunted chocolate shop. Bonus story. Before we go anywhere else. Just saying. I found it, so I had to include it. Also in Victoria. Staying in Victoria. So, the original Rogers Chocolates, located on Government Street in Victoria, is a National Historic Site in Victoria's oldest and most haunted chocolate shop. Charles Candy Rogers moved from Massachusetts to Victoria in 1885 to set up a grocery across the street from where the current shop resides today. 
In addition to fruits and vegetables, he sold chocolates that he had imported from San Francisco. Charles married Leah Morrison, a local, and some tourists and locals alike were buying up their chocolate as fast as the couple could get them on the shelves. Charles decided to start making the sweets himself. He became Canada's first chocolatier, and Leah ran the storefront. Together, they established a thriving business that still runs today as a privately owned and operated retail chain. It is rumored that Charles and Leah still haunt the location. They often slept in the kitchen and apparently never left. Today, the staff reports that Leah rearranges objects on the shelves, while Charles will toss milk chocolates to the floor. He loathes milk chocolates in life, and the company didn't produce them until after Charles' death. Apparently, he still has some very strong feelings about how his company should be run, even though he's doing it from the afterlife. I like my milk chocolate. I like dark chocolate. I'm a good friend of Charles. I'll eat them both. (laughs) Milk chocolate has good use. Put it in a s'more. Yeah. I know dark chocolate works well, too. Dark dark chocolate. But, yeah, but throw the chocolate on the floor. Mm. It's a waste of chocolate. That's that's rough. That's harsh. Uh, Let's see. I think... Yep. Yep. Last last stop for this evening. So we've been doing a lot of hip, uh, hopping back and forth from East Coast to West Coast, back to the East Coast, back to the West Coast, and we've been kind of skipping over the heartland, uh, well, with the exception of our first story. Bound Springs is kind of quasi heartland, Canadian Rockies, but there is a version of the Canadian Great Plains. So there's a huge swath of open land between the Canadian Rockies, and the more metropolitan areas of the East, like Toronto, Montreal, Ottawa, Quebec City, and that. So this is where you're going to find Winnipeg. So if you're hockey fan, you got the Winnipeg Jets. Manitoba is there where a lot of hockey players come from. Yeah. A lot of hockey players. And there's a couple other cities as well. Uh, you know, you got a stuff that we haven't even touched on. Edmonton. Yeah. Um, Another hockey place. Yep. And Calgary. Another hockey place. Yep. They're all hockey places. Any, any, any city. Calgary from Olympic location. Actually, well, can't say they're all hockey places. Of all the places you might have, somehow Quebec City is still lacking a hockey team. They've had one in the past. They've had one to get her back. They've had one in the past, but they don't have one right now. But anyway, so we this, digress. Yeah, we digress as you so often do. But anyway, continuing on. So this last stop, we uh, we're going to be stopping in uh, the city of Winnipeg now. I admittedly had not done much research into the city of Winnipeg before, you know, finding this story and kind of checking it out. And I got to say, Winnipeg also bumping up on my list of Canadian cities to visit. Sounds like a fascinating town there in the Canadian heartland. And uh, so this this particular city, it's uh, it's less than 70 miles due north of where Minnesota and North Dakota they have a kind of almost due north-south border that comes up straight to the Canadian border. And from that point, you go due north about 70 miles, or a little under 70 miles, and you will find the city of Winnipeg. It is centered around the confluence of the Red and Anasiboine, Assiniboine, I don't know, Assiniboine Rivers. I only have to say that once. Winnipeg is the capital city of Manitoba. And it's known as the gateway to the West, having grown its roots as a major railroad and transportation hub. Today, those transportation routes have faded in favor of Winnipeg's cultural strengths. 
Winnipeg was named the culture capital of Canada by Canadian Heritage in 2010, and after reading into the vast list of attractions, sports, and festivals that the city has to offer, I can't wait to make a visit myself. Now, amongst the many historical and cultural gems that Winnipeg has to offer is the Del Navert House. This historic landmark, built in 1895, was once home to Manitoba Premier John, or Sir Hugh John MacDonald, the son of Canada's first Prime Minister, Sir John A. MacDonald. Today it is full, a museum full of artifacts laid out in a way that would have best represent how the home would have looked when MacDonald and his family lived there. From the heavy atmosphere of Sir Hugh's study with its blood-red walls to the energetic bedroom of his fencing and pistol-shooting daughter Daisy to the nursery with its collection of creepy dolls, every room in Delaware House is packed with personality. The Delaware House does not shy away from its haunted history, and as a matter of fact, in 2019, the Winnipeg International Writers Festival selected four dark fiction authors to stay overnight at the Delaware House for a truly unique experience. Now, I say truly unique experience. This is one, we're talking about this one in 2019, but I did find some references online to the fact that this might almost be something that they do on a recurring basis as part of the uh, Winnipeg International Writer Festival. So. Sounds like fun. Anyways, so after touring the home and getting settled in for the night, the authors took to their main task, an evening of writing in the confines of a haunted house. Dave Demchuk, author of The Bone Mother, opted to work in Sir Hugh's study. Stoker award-winning author, uh, a writer, Jess Landry, tucked herself in, away in Daisy's room. Adam Trash co-editor of the Parallel Prairies Anthology and author of The Ones to Make It Through, settled by the front door, liking his view of the first, uh, of, of the first floor, and award-winning author J.H. Moncrieff was drawn to the bedroom that had belonged to McDonald's son, Jack. Though an accomplished athlete, Jack suffered from diabetes, which was nearly impossible to treat or manage in the Victorian era. He died before reaching adulthood, in the room where J.H. set up for the evening. As J.H. was settling in, she paused to take in the view from Jack's window. No sooner had she glanced at the glass, it was then that the closet door flew open with violent force, slamming into her laptop. While the laptop survived the collision, the other authors came running to see what had happened. They tried to recreate the, um, any events that could have possibly caused the door to swing open with such force, but there was nothing to explain the occurrence. J.H. was a touch unsettled, to say the least, but she was determined to stay on in the room. She worked through the night until about 6.30 in the morning when Delnavert House staff arrived with breakfast for the writers. The staffers confirmed that the closet had never been used for anything more than storage, and there was no natural explanation for the writers' unsettling experience. If you want to read a story inspired by J.H.'s stay in Delaware House, she has a new novel coming out this October, October 2021, uh, just a couple years after um, you know, her stay in the house, and it's called The Restoration. Her personal experience with what she believes is Jack's spirit, coupled with Jack's tragic past, early passing, gave fuel to her fictional Vandermeer family that is at the center of the novel. Might have to go ahead and add that to my reading list. Among some of the other experiences at Delnavert House is another episode that seems to repeat itself in young Jack's room. 
Alongside his other exploits, Jack enjoyed collecting stamps, and his stamp collection book still resides in his room today. Artifact, you may not touch the collection as a guest, but you are free to take photographs. That is, if you can successfully do so. Maybe Jack is a little possessive of his collection, or maybe it's something else altogether. But even some of the most experienced photographers seem to have issues getting a clear picture of the stamps in the book. Pictures often turn out blurry without rhyme or reason. The home often has other spooky occurrences with lights that will turn on or off on their own, moving objects, and haunting presences in the basement and attic. To this day, now that Dalnavert House remains very open about its haunted history with ghost tours, paranormal investigations, and even discussions about Victorian-era spiritualism. So, that's on the list. I think we need to do a Haunted Canada trip to take people around. Okay. First, you have to get through Haunted Key West, which you would still like to get for. Oh, yeah, yeah. Haunted Key West, December 2nd through 5th, 2022, next year. So, you got over a year to... Uh, to, to go ahead, get this on your calendar now, uh, count your pennies, and uh, get yourself some reservations. Get your um, deposit down, and then you can pay it off, uh, you know, over the time. Yeah, over, you know, incrementally. Don't want to put it off too long because the spots are very limited. I think we're down to 20 spots available, so uh, it's that. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, there's a, not that many spots available, so. Uh, it definitely will be fun because there is uh, at least one investigation at Fort Montello with David Sloan and Robert the Doll Experience. And then we're going to be eating at a haunted brewery. And, and we uh, have one more place we're still waiting for confirmation on. As soon as we get that, we will let you know. It's taking time. Knock on the wood. Maybe we'll be able to announce it next time. Yes. But we just need that written confirmation. Yes, we do. Getting there, though. But in the meantime, there are some other things that we can confirm. At least Luckily. Let, let, let's re- confirm one tonight. Yes. One that we actually just made official and it went up for sale just before we hit the air tonight. And that is that we are partnered with RVA Tuck Tuck this fall. So if you're from the area and you've seen them driving around, these are the enlarged golf carts where you can fit up to six people and they take you around on tours in the uh, city. So they are actually going to do uh, one of our haunted tours and it's an hour and a half long tour with one of our guides. And you can, uh, as I said, take up to six people. You can also take a few bevies on this with you. Yep, yep. So it is, yeah, this, unlike our walking tour, since Richmond is not an open container city, yep. um, this is more like a, a party bus type experience, yep. if you will. So you can go ahead and you can have those beverages on board. And, of course, your designated driver, if you will, is the driver, in this case, uh, one of our guys who's going to be driving you around town and sharing the haunted stories. Um, of course, well, you do eventually have to get off that tuk-tuk, so make sure you do have a designated driver after that or call an Uber or something along those lines. Yeah. But, yeah, those are uh, available now on select, um, select days in September and October. I think as of right now, I think there's only a total of 10 tour slots available through September and October. Um, we'll see how it does. Maybe we'll add a few more, but in the meantime, it's a very limited opportunity. Uh, so you can go ahead and you can find the link uh, on our website. It will take you to uh, RVA Tuck Tuck. They're the ones that are actually handling the booking and all of that stuff. Uh, so you'll find it on their website uh, as well, of course. And, uh, yeah, that will be one of the fun things that we have coming up this fall. And uh, we'll, we'll announce the next one next time. Excuse me. Yep. We'll have at least one more that we can announce again in two weeks, maybe two more. 
um, but we're, we're getting a couple uh, winter events lined up for, as well. So we got a whole lot coming down the chute, and we're very excited about it. And we hope that you'll come on out and join us on, uh, for one of these occasions. Yeah. So, and next time we're going to be talking haunted Broadway, because Broadway's opening up yeah. shortly. Uh, so I dove into some some stories of the haunted theaters along Broadway. Any questions that we missed? People are taking sides in uh, Team Milk Chocolate versus Team Dark Chocolate. <laughs> Alex is Team Dark Chocolate. Woo-hoo! But uh, Patrick, I think, has said he is Team Milk, milk Chocolate. chocolate yep. um, although he's just he's not much for uh, chocolate in general. Um, Come here, spicy boy. Willy Wonka and the Uncle Lumbo's Garden for Life. Yeah, I can see how that would be. Yeah. I mean, also getting sucked up into a chocolate Pipeline. Spirits and Spirits is an underrated duo. We completely agree, which is why our uh, our pub crawl, when we do occasionally offer it, is called our Spirits and Spirits pub crawl. But uh, we got we got something coming up that's a, a little bit of a twist on that. Yeah. So we'll we'll we're hopefully... working with a, a couple of new partners. Yeah. So we're just finalizing again our agreements with them, and then we'll be able to yeah. go out. Yeah. Now, of course, we're uh, still uh, very loyal to our old partners as well, which is that yeah. So we're very happy to be able to um, be working with uh, more members of the Richmond community. Okay. Okay. Happy birthday. Happy birthday Thank to you. you. Happy, happy birthday, birthday to you. Happy birthday to you, Alex. Happy birthday to you. I told you I'd get her to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and even the voice says happy birthday <laughs> Oh, oh, had enough of that, huh? Yeah. Oh, but, yeah, so, anyways, yeah, we got a lot coming up. Of course, it's um, got busy season, busy, spooky, peak spooky seasons right around the corner with yeah. October. Got the tuck tuck thing going on. Um, we're going to be busy through September. Uh, gosh, a lot going on. I need to breathe. Well, 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 well we have a, when I say we're busy in September, it's kind of us personally, which I'm saying we're busy, including the vacation that we're going to take. Yes. So busy vacation, busy relaxing. So I have two days in September. I don't want to sleep. Yeah. October season is going to be even worse. Day <laughs> <Made laughs> my birthday. Oh, least we could do. Thank you for watching. But, yeah, so anyways, we will be back with, again, two weeks, Haunted Broadway. Hope that you will be here for that. And we, uh, yeah. Hope that you'll come on out and join us for one of our many varied types of events that we got coming up as well. So, uh, yeah, peak spooky season right around the corner. Year is flying by. And uh, if you want, if you want to know how close we're getting, it's pumpkin. Yep, pumpkin beers out. Pick this up at Costco. Pumpkin. Tis the season. I haven't seen pumpkin spice latte yet. Thank God. It'll be here before you know it. Your birthday in October. Somebody's birthday in October? No, mine's in July. We just had one. Yeah. And he is a New Year's baby. December. Pretty darn close. December 30th, to be exact. <laughs> He's a New Year baby. <laughs> um, but Alice's birthday was today. Yeah. So, but yeah, I don't know. Do I know anybody that has a birthday in October? 
I'm, I'm sure we do. Just escaping the memory at the moment. Yeah. I need to look at my shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is, that is. Oh. Well, anyways, with that, oh, Patrick. Ah, we know Patrick's birthday. Yay. Oh, I, I missed that before. It must have been commented somewhere up in the... Earlier. Yeah. Yep. Oh, sorry. My bad. Anyways. So we will go ahead. We will scoot along for the evening. And we bid, bid you a, a good night. Spicy one. With, with any luck, as adorable as she is... Hopefully she, she'll have a new home by next time. Yes. <laughs> Oh, Glenn's dad had his birthday was uh, October 23rd. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I had, um, no, no, that was his anniversary. My cousin's anniversary. Ah. Uh, I think someone was confused and thought that I had a birthday in October. Gotcha. No, no, he's no. a December baby. December. Uh, and Glenn, uh, Glenn was January because yeah, we did the show for Glenn for his birthday. Um, you know, the Point Lookout, which is hard to believe that Point Lookout Maryland State Park episode was over six months ago now. Yep. Where's the time go? <laughs> All right. Well, good night, everybody. Thanks again for watching, and we will look forward to uh, seeing you next time. Y'all, good night. <laughs>